Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 41, we're discussing Excalibur number 40, The Trial of Lockheed. I should be writing this intro in rhyme, but I honestly don't have the time, except that I apparently do. Is this passion for poetry new? Probably not. Let's stop and never do that again. We're out of the Prometheum exchange, but we're not out of the woods because Lockheed's hurt and he needs our love and our patience for rhyming couplets to get better. Excalibur number 40 was originally published in August 1991, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Dave Hoover on pencils, Harry Candelario and Tim Dizon on inks, Brad Bancata on colors, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. We have a stupendous guest with us today to help us and Lockheed uh, tread water and break hearts and maybe come up with a smart thing or two to say about comics and funny animals and the loving and occasionally weird relationship between the two. I will introduce <laughs> our guest in a moment, but first, the regular zoo. I am Dr. Anna Papard. You know the kind of stuff I do. I write about gender and sexuality and superheroes and super bodies and superpowers and super cute mutants and other types of devil boys and aliens. You can find my academic <laughs> writing in academic places and my popular writing in popular places like Shelf Dust and the Middle Spaces and Comics XF and other great websites. But I've heard the millennial way is to make the job you really want, so I've gone ahead and given myself the title of Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and I'm sure that'll start paying off anytime now. I am joined, as always, by Mav. The stage is yours. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and this is one of two podcasts I have, over on Box Podcast and here on GGW, <laughs> and I'm a frequent guest on a dozen other shows, too. I also teach writing in American Lit. I did, like, 15 years of college just to write this bit. I'm excited to talk about about Lockheed. And frankly, this episode is, all, is a thing we all need. This issue is great. In fact, it's delightful, especially after three straight issues that were quite awful. But that's great because it shows the series has ranged from Sword is Drawn to Prometheum Exchange. I can't believe this gimmick has gone on this long. At the end of this episode, you'll hear everything in song. But just to make it fun, I want to offer a transition. And this is not something that before this I've mentioned. So as a poetic lesson, I'm going to teach enjambment. When else will I have the chance other than this event? So to you, Andrew, I offer this gift. Not too much of a heavy burden to lift. An odd-numbered couplet ending in orange. <laughs> 
Wow. wow. That was that was a disjuncture map. Like I was not even ready to introduce Andrew. I was just like, what what? It just ended. I thought that was gonna go on indefinitely. Successful teaching. Thank you, Mav. <laughs> Andrew, it is your time to remind the listeners of your excellence. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Charles University and project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big data, big social media study of the creator of Lockheed. If my pet <laughs> were ever asked to describe me at a tribunal, I would not enjoy that as her entire engagement with the world revolves around putting either her mouth or her genitals on whatever's in nearest proximity. Oh and I'm not God. confident that kind of sensor experience would leave me well represented. <laughs> wow. Thank you for taking that already in such a direction, Andrew. Um, we will possibly talk about animals and funny animals and sexuality a little bit today. So that might come Andrew has the greatest pets for the record. Um, his new dog is the most adorable dog. And although I like my dog, I feel like it makes my dog look like crap. So I'm a fan of Andrew's dog. <laughs> That's not how it's Cuter. supposed to work. <laughs> I don't know. I like, I have dog envy. I'm like, I've got a poodle. You saw and... your cat. Your cat's adorable. Yeah. Yeah, I know. My, my mom's poodle is very adorable too. But I, I just feel like, you know, your dog's pretty great too. Thank you. My, my cat's just one of those roommates you see every two, three days. <laughs> She's oh, around yeah. Somewhere, I don't know. <laughs> I think she still lives here. <laughs> somehow I've achieved a life goal by being on a podcast where I hear the lie. My mom's poodle is adorable too. That's that's really useful. I really like that. <laughs> that voice that you heard is our wonderful guest for this week. The pod is jubilant to welcome oh Dr. Daniel F. Yesbik. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much, uh, Anna. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And I'll tell the listeners a little bit more about you. So, Dr. Oh, Dan Yesbik. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, they need to know all of these fabulous things. <laughs> Dr. Dan Yesbik is a professor of English communications and cinema studies. He has lectured and published on diverse topics, including comics history, animal studies, Hollywood cinema, radio drama, and globalized Shakespeare. His retrospective celebration of the classic American children's artist George Carlson, titled Perfect Nonsense, was released in 2014 from Fantagraphics, and his recent essays on comics and culture have appeared in a variety of journals and anthologies, including The Black or the Ink, Icons of the American Comic Book, Animal Comics, Comic Studies Here and Now, The Other 1980s, Monstrous Women in Comics, Disney Channel Tween Programming, and The Routledge Companion to Gender and Sexuality in Comic Book Studies. Now, Dan, my impression of you from reading your work and hearing you speak at numerous conferences is that you know pretty much everything about every type of comics, but <laughs> I would goodness. love Hardly. to hear about how it all started. Like, have you been a lifelong comics reader? Uh, yes. And first of all, I have to, to thank you for that's probably the most rewarding summary I've ever heard uh, of, of all the weird things that I do and <laughs> that my family wishes I didn't. So I appreciate it. Oh, that. my goodness. Thank you so much. And also, I, you know, um, it, I feel bad that you had to listen to some of my stuff at the conferences. But, you know, it's, uh, it's as long as, oh long, as long as someone was there, I guess it really happened. So I appreciate that. This is too much self-deprecation, Dan. All right. Well, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's not it at all. But uh, yeah, no. Um, um, the the origin of my uh, comics fascination. I, I um, told somebody once the other, not actually too long ago, we all had to do sort of, uh, we were getting ready for the fall term and we were all doing sort of an inspiring uh, faculty group hug kind of thing. And they, and they all were talking about what led them to chemistry or what led them to sociology or what led them to, you know, I don't know how you get led to sonography, but somebody was, right? So, uh, <laughs> and they asked me and I said, well, I'll be honest with you, comics saved my life. They really did. They, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up, at Seven Mile Wasser in uh, 
Northwest Detroit, which was very, very useful and important for me, but I don't recommend it to other people. It was a challenging time. And there were three or four of us who were all friends on the block who all had different levels of need and uh, different levels of difficulty, either at home or economically or whatever it might be. And my home was very happy, so I don't mean to suggest that it wasn't. But we would all meet every every week to go get comics. We would go down to the local 7-Eleven and we all had our favorites. My one friend was all Archie and Sergeant Rock. This is a weird combo there, but whatever. It makes perfect uh, sense to me. I'm in. Okay, well, good. I'm glad. We had perfect sense to him, too. Mine was weirder because I was all Uncle Scrooge and Spider-Man, which is really, really strange blend. But that's, those are what spoke to me. Our other friend was all Superman and Batman. And it was just, that was just, that was how it happened. So the, the closest, earliest friends I had were all comics based. Uh, but it didn't really solidify until uh, my family did the sort of Great American trip out west to see the national parks and such. And uh, and I, my family loved nature. We loved, we loved the environment. We loved national parks. And, uh, and, and we went for long, 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 long rides through them. And uh, for a little kid, even one who loves nature, that could get frustrating. And every single gas station that we stopped at had comics and they all had the same kind of comics. They all had the, the late 80, the early 80s uh, Whitman three packs that mm. had you know, mm-hmm. um, Donald Duck and Walt Disney's Comics and Stories and Bugs Bunny and Uncle Scrooge. And out of just sheer desperation, I would buy like four or five of them. So I'd have like, you know, 12, 15 comics to read while we're looking at yet another mountain or yet another geyser or whatever it might be. And uh, I just fell in love. I fell in love with Carl Bark's world. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so happy to work with, with Disney stuff and with uh, Carl Bark stories now. And I think the thing I really loved about it was that it wasn't always, especially in the world of the animal comics, it wasn't always clean. It wasn't always obvious. The good guys weren't always good. Uh, the villains were not always villainous. Sometimes they were really doing something well. And the world that these comics created was so fascinating to me because things could go really wrong. People had bad luck. People had accidents. This was not how the stories I was taught as a child, right? This is not the way it felt to me. And it's always felt real ever since. So yeah, I hate to say it. I'm kind of a lifer. <laughs> oh, no, I love that. And I obviously want to talk more about animal comics and some of the subversive and interesting things that they can do. I'm also curious, though, about your journey to doing comics professionally. I mean, your journey to being someone who studies comics. <laughs> like, what is interesting to you about kind of making this part of your scholarship? Because I think it's been part of your scholarship for most of your career, hasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, there's other stuff that nobody cares about. So, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so so that's, that's actually a really fun story. And I've told this story before to students who are like, can I make a living with comics? I'm like, yes, yes, you can. But you should make sure that living makes you happy first. So yeah. yeah. So when I was studying, uh, I always knew I wanted to work with writing. I wanted to work with literature. I wanted to work with art. And when I was in college, uh, you know, the whole thing, you know, no jobs, no chance, no future, no this, no that. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it worthwhile. I'm going to do the hardest damn thing I can. So I focused on Shakespeare and uh, adaptations of Shakespeare in different media because I love media and I love cinema and I love radio. And I got into the hardest, darkest, most difficult, esoteric Shakespearean theories and did my undergrad master's and my my master's exam and my PhD all on Shakespeare. And uh, and uh, to survive that, I read comics, right? So I read, uh, wow. I, I, and luckily it was a great time to read comics. Like Watchmen had happened, Mouse was happening, all these great landmarks. Uh, watershed works were coming one after another. It was a big Cerebus fan before Dave Sim lost his mind and sort of things like that. Not 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 just superhero comics. I love the undergrounds too. I, I was I was into everything comics that would sort of cleanse my brain of the heavy, you know, heavy theoretical Shakespearean mumbo jumbo that would that would that would 
uh, <laughs> that would tie me down uh, during the daylight hours. And then after I finished and I went on the market, every and this is true, every single job I've gotten, no one has ever asked me to teach Shakespeare. No one has ever asked me to teach John Dryden. No one's ever asked me to teach Chaucer. No one's ever asked me to teach Milton. The first question I get is, how soon can you do a comics class? Or how can you integrate graphic novels and sequential narratives and sequential animals and everything else into our class? How can you make people not hate our classes? And that's usually the most common thing I get. If I had known that, I would have shoved all the other stuff and just focused right on comics to start with. But we all come to it in kind of a different way. And it was something I always loved. It was always my sort of, not a secret passion, but an honest passion that I would sort of show and try to introduce to other people. So that's that's really how the comics comic scholarship came up. I love that because that comes full circle with your childhood experience too in terms of comics being this escape and this thing that saves people and then you're talking about them sort of saving classes and saving people's interest in all of these subjects which is wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if my students still feel safe, but I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing I will tell you, this is, I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with animal comics or with Excalibur, but my comp classes have, have heavy graphic influence, of course, and we just, my one comp class, uh, and I always have them at the end tell me what they liked and what they didn't like, etc. So this is just standard college comp one, and we do um, Katie Green's uh, Light of the My Shadow, which is a wonderful graphic memoir. It's graphic medicine about dealing with depression and anorexia, bulimia. And I have had more students respond to that book than I have anything else I've ever taught. And they all say this book has to stay in this class. It must stay in this class. And they aren't they aren't all dealing with those particular psychological traumas or diseases, but they all find it so powerful and so moving. And I've had students I've even had students come to the class and say, I took this class because I heard this book is in here. So oh, that's wow. not me. That's that's because Katie Green is such an incredible storyteller and such an incredible um, speaker to people who understand mental illness. Uh, but that that's the, that's the best thing about comics as as far as I'm concerned is that they and I like how you said it, Anna, they they can save people. They really can. Well, I mean, it's a different way of representing our world and representing reality that can be accessible to people in different ways. And I know that we all teach comics here, so we've all had those light bulb moments with people, too, where people just think that you couldn't tell whatever kind of story in comics, but also that you couldn't tell this type of story in general because the ways that comics tell stories is right. different than the right. way anything else tells stories, right? Yep, that's exactly right. Let's get into... Well, actually, no, before we do that, I do want to ask you an Excalibur uh, specific question. I know that you know the Excalibur series and that you've been a fan of it at various points in your life. And I like to ask I'm, people... I'm that, actually yeah, surrounded so by it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to ask people, you know, that do know the series because some of our guests don't. What's your kind of feeling about what the identity of Excalibur is? You know, obviously we like it enough that we've decided to devote 126 plus hours right. of our life to it. And <laughs> we have people that are listening along to every episode that just love this series so many years later so what to you makes Excalibur special what makes it one of your faves well I'm going to answer that with with two big thank yous to you Anna so first of all when you invited me I thought what a great chance to go back and read them all which means it's a great chance to go back and find them all which oh, I did yeah. uh, and I don't have them all thank God uh, but I, I I've been uh, I've been happily binging on it from the very very start and I was asking myself that same question why did I always like this one so much and, and the copies I had are the copies I had when I was a kid so they're pretty sad looking but they're still there uh, and uh, and and I I really got to reconnect with that sort of honest adolescent fan that that I have uh, since managed to you know sequester and kill as an adult as a middle-aged teacher oh, of comics yeah so so it, 
it was really fun to bring that back. And I did actually recall one of the great things about Excalibur was uh, it was always really the X, the X book, if we can call it that, which I guess we can, that I looked most forward to. And the one I was kind of most excited about from the beginning, because it's always a little off kilter, right? It's always a little farcical. If it's not being campy, it's being sort of obtuse or slant or just sort of bizarre. It always kept me off kilter as a reader. I never knew what to expect next. Some of it was a little forced and some of them are actually kind of, kind of goofy. I, I think there is no justification for the terrible poetry and the issue we're going to be talking about <laughs> whatsoever but that was just it they, they were sort of fearlessly humorous uh, and they were really sort of channeling the world of the marvel x-men franchise along with the world of sort of the british it's the it's the black adder of x books right it just is it's oh. just it, we, we don't really know where on earth we're going to go with it next but we know we're going to tie it to things that we're kind of familiar with but we're going to kind of refresh them and revamp them in some new and exciting ways and the other thing i really liked about it is i think a lot of the other X books were very carefully policed by editors. They were sort of, we can't mess with the continuity. We can't, we can't turn Wolverine green, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, but with Excalibur, I think because it's set in a lighthouse and it's British and it's dealing with, you know, um, you know, war wolves and people that come and go in different dimensions, I think they let them get away with all kinds of goofiness. This is the other thing I want to thank you for. And I was talking to my friend about it, who's also a big Excalibur fan. And we've, I met him about 10, 15 years ago, but we had no idea that it was one of our favorite books when we were both kids. So we spent a lot of time just reminiscing about how much we liked it and how much other people didn't understand what was wrong with us for liking it so much uh and uh because they they were all much more sort of hardcore x-men fans and part of part of the x world and the new mutants and, and then everything uh and we grew up reading it really before the jim lee relaunch and the and the, the you know the great avalanche of commercialism that sort of made it impossible to figure out what x book you're actually reading anymore but uh but but those books and and, and those are great heroic epics right there's they're wonderful uh superhero genres but but they didn't have the the freeform fun, the freeform play, and they didn't have the sort of British farcical goofiness of what made, made Excalibur exciting. So I remember reading that first special and that first issue just thinking, this is so incredibly bizarre, I can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs> yeah, I think we keep coming back to kind of the strangeness of it, and you touched on so many elements of it there, Dan, in terms of the ways that it was able to get away with certain things, the way that it just had like a slightly different feel, and we've talked before about sort of the cult identity of the series in that sense, because I don't think it's a series that always satisfies, even, I mean, to this no, day, there's no. so many unresolved plot holes, and yet the possibilities mm -hmm. that it brings up are what gives you that invitation right. to be so deeply right. invested, right? Which is, in one sense, what, it, what makes creativity fun and what makes great storytelling fun, and the thing I, when I was talking to my friend, he said it's like the thing about Excalibur when we were reading it when we were young was like it was like a TV show that knew it was canceled and had one season to go. <laughs> yes, and it, and it just yes. and it just didn't care where it went. Except Excalibur wasn't canceled. You knew there was going to be another and another and another. And you know, Doctor Doom and battling Kitty Pride with the Soul Sword. I mean, what who 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 comes up with that one, right? Uh, or um, uh, just the whole idea of technet pulled from the british comics uh and it, it was just so fresh and fun and and totally unusual and not that the x-men aren't but um it, it it just didn't have the it just wasn't afraid to dive into wacky land and and, and i and i needed wacky land then and I, I really need it now so i'm happy to be in wacky land oh well yeah speaking of wacky land let's <laughs> uh get into the issue at hand with an oh, issue summary heavens, yes. and then and then come back to some of these specifics about this issue and figure out our mileage on this one. So I know we've got many, many, many lovely listeners listening along with the pod, but for the benefit of all of us, let's situate our journey today with a plot summary. Excalibur number 40 begins in a hospital where a team of top-notch surgeons are bent over a very important patient. It is, of course, Lockheed the Dragon, gravely injured back in limbo by Doctor Doom. From the observation gallery,
gallery, Excalibur sit and worry. One of the doctors tells them they've done everything they can. It's up to Lockheed now. Meanwhile, Lockheed finds himself having an out-of-body experience. Quite literally, he tries to talk to Excalibur, but they can't see or hear him as he drifts through the ceiling into a spaceship hovering above the hospital. It's an astral ship of Lockheed's people come to put him on trial for abandoning them and his fiancée. Apparently, in the Dragon Society, a vaguely defined sense of community is prized above all, making Lockheed's desertion a capital offense. If he's found guilty of wanton abandonment, he'll be sentenced to death. In case you haven't read this issue before, all of the dragons, including Lockheed, also speak in rhyme. Uh, that's what we were joking about at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Lockheed is asked to choose art or science to argue his case and chooses art, which involves a psychic brush to illustrate the histories of his teammates in Excalibur and his particular affection for his kindred spirit, Kitty Pride. Back on Earth, Brian, of all people, tries to comfort Rachel, who's having feelings about not taking it to Doctor Doom, but she assures us she knows the difference between right and wrong, then assures us she will destroy Doom if he attacks her again. Oh, Rachel, so confused when Scott Lobdell is writing you. <laughs> Elsewhere, <laughs> Alistair Stewart and Di Thomas watch the royal reaction to Lockheed's injury on the news, which raises some questions, but okay. Di receives a phone call, which causes him to block all the roads to the hospital and hurry out the door with Alistair hot on his heels. Something mysterious is afoot. Meanwhile, back on the spaceship, Lockheed continues his story about his adventures with Excalibur, but by the time he gets to Excalibur's 100th clash with cross-dimensional Nazis, um, everybody has fallen asleep, including the pilots, which is a problem. If the astral ship malfunctions so far from the dragon's home, only Lockheed, whose soul is relatively close to his body, would survive. Lockheed springs into action and restores the ship's controls. In return for Lockheed's life-saving heroism, Lockheed's dragon brethren agree to commute his death sentence to exile from the flock. As he descends back to his body, Lockheed wonders if he'll regret his actions. As Lockheed returns to his body, a helicopter lands on the roof. Excalibur's on high alert when Rachel finds occupants of the helicopter are able to block her psychic scans. Everyone hurries to the roof and finds the X-Men? Dum dum dum. <laughs> That's a cliffhanger for the next issue. We won't talk about that yet. Okay, let's do first impressions of this one. And guest privilege, it's coming to you, Dan. What are your feelings about this issue? What's your mileage on the delightful to irritating ratio here? <laughs> I, 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 I think it's delightfully irritating. How's that? Um, it, Perfect. It's, it's not great, but again, I give them credit for just balls out going nuts with all kinds of wonderful ideas. And the more I read it, the more I saw that there's just so many fun overlaps going on here with the trial of Lockheed and the surgery and the sort of other continuity strains are being pulled through. It's it's not an issue I would recommend to people if I wanted them to start reading Excalibur. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I have always loved the character of Lockheed, and I think he goes farther and, and has developed more in some really interesting directions here than anyone ever dared to do before. So for, for anyone who's interested in Dragon Comics, I think it's essential reading, uh, however many of those there are. Uh, and there are some, but... Uh, and I think it also, in terms of animal comics, I think it's fascinating because we're taking just about every major tradition of animal comics and blending it in here in a big sort of bouillabaisse of fun, which is which is one of the things that always makes Excalibur, makes Excalibur great. We aren't too worried about the plausibility of the continuity at any one point. And who knew that there was an, an interstellar space dragon trial going on that it could happen? So uh, again, full of surprises. Uh, a lot of them fail, I think, in terms of delivery. But ultimately, I certainly enjoyed reading it. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of the issue, I'd say, Dan. And yeah, again, we're going to come back to Animal Comics in a moment. But Andrew and Mav, I'm curious about your sort of mood coming into this issue. I wasn't sure whether this was one you liked or hated, so I'm curious. Um, I, I thought this was the best comic <laughs> I've ever read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm coloring that with the fact that, you know, we just spent 
three weeks, yeah. nearly a month, talking about Promethium Exchange. So I don't remember any other comics ever. My entire comics knowledge right now is just Promethium Exchange, and this is the best comic I've ever read. Understandable. That's probably not really true. Um, I have criticisms. It's not perfect. I, it's Labdell. But this is the high point of his run. I, I, I think this is fun. I think this wow. is fun. I'm trying to decide whether I agree with that. And I'm like, maybe I do. No, I mean, I, it, 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 it's just true. it might be true. I mean, I do like the current vacation issue, but a lot yeah. of that had to do with art and convention. So I'm not sure. But anyway, Andrew, what, what's your takeaway? Um, I'm not a huge fan. There's, there's two things I don't like about it. The first is that this is something you can never put back in the box this is who Lockheed is going forward you've made a huge choice here and we're going to talk about that I'm sure Uh, and the other thing I don't like about it is um, the potential for Lockheed to function as a cipher in this issue because Lockheed's perspective on Excalibur and in particular his perspective on Kitty there's a massive potential for characterization there for for genuine insight and I don't find that we get it Uh, and I also find it a little gendered as well in that when Lockheed describes his um, female teammates he describes what they've been through and when he describes his male teammates he describes their interior existence a little bit more and i think that's very lobdellish and again because like like lockheed is maybe kitty's greatest confidant i I would love to hear insights about kitty from lockheed and we don't get them and 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 maybe not in verse would be helpful i I would appreciate that too yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) my my minor pushback there is you said we can't put it back like you're right we can't put the genie back in the bottle except for we did right like no one talks about this story there have been many better lockheed stories since this point um, where we've seen the interiority of lockheed Um, we've seen him interacting with his people again none of it ever mentions this no one cares about this so like so 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 i think we can put it back in back in the bottle and we did this is a tiny little side universe that doesn't matter to anything and like i said it's the best labdell does on this book for me i think he's done something cute he's not tried to you know he did his version of the story and as far as lockheed's relationship with kitty yeah lockheed i mean if you read it it really sounds like lockheed's just hanging around hoping to you know hook up with her eventually which i believe is what labdell thinks of lockheed labdell also unironically thinks that brian's in charge of this team so you know sure and if i let it go and say in the version of the universe that is penned by scott labdell who is the the author of record on this book for who knows how long one more issue only one more um but 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 like he is he is not chris claremont he is not alan davis and in the vision of excalibur as defined by scott labdell to me this is this is his best shot at being something unique something different he's not just copying chris here he's got his own view here and i found it interesting i'm not gonna say it's amazing it's interesting i think i i appreciate the swing yeah and i mean i'll say that this is a minor defense of it too my sort of capsule thoughts about this issue are just that i appreciate the effort to do something interesting with the treading water because Mm -hmm. we are treading water before alan davis comes back and you know we talked about that before you know alan davis wanted certain things done before he came back and that's partly what we've been engaged in for the past four issues but if you are going to do that you could at least do something creative and try to do something you know that takes place on an astral plane filling in aspects of Lockheed's backstory and doing it in rhyme because why not I appreciate the effort right Mm -hmm. 
it's an effort to do something but it's not this isn't a pushback against anything but just that the way that you put this story back in the bottle though is that this could just be a dream Lockheed had because he's like dying he's having an out-of-body experience did this actually happen or did it not actually happen I think the way it's written we are expected to think it actually happened but you totally could yeah. just assume that it didn't sure there's this there's that sort of out-of-body you know transcendental moment where he's like Am I, is this really happening to me so yeah that makes sense that's built into it like a little bit Mm-hmm. which is like not somewhere that. there's a future marvel editor who will thank you for that suggestion <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> so that we don't have to deal with it okay well let's talk about animal comics and we'll get into some of the more specifics of of this issue through that um and i'm interested in all your insights about all things dan but especially about this because i know as you mentioned off the top it's a particular interest and passion of yours that you've published about several times before um yeah so lo- looking at this through the uh, lens of the history and the theory of animal comics there's it it becomes much more interesting because there's no other issue like this i don't think in the excalibur runs the issues that i've read no, where we focus so closely on the position and the perspective and the agency of the actual animal in fact you know in general, in most comics, Lockheed comes and goes. He's sort of there and he's not there. Sometimes he fights, sometimes he's gone for issues at a time. You know, it's just sort of a convenient way of pointing out what generally happens in superhero comics, which is that, or in or in an awful lot of comics, not necessarily superhero comics, where the human is privileged, right? So we get this sort of anthrocentric thing where the stories are largely about people. Sometimes they're mutants, sometimes they're cybernetic people, sometimes they're people who have names based on animals like Batman, Spider-Man, Wolverine, you know, but they're still people and we're interested interested in uh, people qualities of them and i think I'll, I'll put this off to later but of course nightcrawler is really interesting there because he has so many bestial qualities to him right the tail and the hands and the agility and all of that but there's all there's there's some real unexpected thrills when we look at animal comics here there's really uh three or four major traditions in animal comics and they'll all be familiar to all of you and i'm not just talking about comic books i'm talking about comic strips and i'm talking about editorial cartoons and single panel cartoons and everything else and maybe the most common and mainstream and familiar is the idea of the companion animal sort of pet comic right so snoopy calvin and Hobbes, bloom county right where there's a human and an animal paired and sometimes it's as exciting as marmaduke uh, which isn't that exciting (laughs) but it's still fun sometimes it's really really fantastical like calvin and Hobbes. some sometimes it's really really interesting in terms of action adventure like little orphan annie and her dog sandy sometimes it's crypto you know there's lots of superhero companion pets we've got companion pet series now there's rumors about about a companion pet spinoff tv show so but that idea of the companion animal story is really really powerful and it certainly informs the relationship between lockheed and kitty from the very beginning even before excalibur right that the pet is loyal to her and sometimes the pet is more than just a pet sometimes it's a companion sometimes it's a confidant somebody earlier said you know lockheed seems to understand kitty more than anybody else consistently so there's that sense that our pets get us right that our pets are our own private little moments and uh in the world of animal theory derrida smashes that against the wall and burns it to a crisp uh and he says this is just all (laughs) anthrocentric idealism where we just assume that we just anthropomorphize our pets and assume that they care about us and think like us they're animals they're instinct based and we can get out to that in another way but it's also interesting because then you have a whole other tradition of animal comics and then all these traditions blend and merge and slide around constantly there's nothing more intersectional than the world of the animal in 
economics, really. And that's the idea of the anthropomorphic world, right? Where they're basically humans in animal skins. Mm-hmm. So they, they talk, they have jobs, they wear clothes, they're, they walk on two legs when the animal version of them would not. And ironically, uh, in, in something like Uncle Scrooge or Donald Duck or Pogo, right? Those animals, those human animals, those animals are, or womanables or whatever, are usually surrounded by actual animals, which you would think would rub against the metaphor, yeah. but it actually yeah. doesn't. There's that famous moment in Mouse where he goes to see his therapist, and of course they're mouse people, and there's a picture of a cat. And he says, actual picture of a cat, really. This is really a picture of a cat in my mouse therapist's office. And then he says, gee, does that mess with my metaphor? I'm not really sure. Uh, yeah. and, and you would think it would. Logically, it would. But there's something really pleasing in human narrative, psychologically, culturally, we're not really sure, that bridges, that soothes, that fixes that gap between us and the wild, us and the animal world, us and the animal instinct, something we've lost or given up or rejected or evolved out of or whatever it is. But those those anthropomorphic worlds, which are usually tied to family entertainment or childhood entertainment, right? They're funny animal comics are traditionally for kids, uh, which is why Mouse sort of rips all that to pieces. And Lockheed is certainly sort of part of that as well, because here he not only talks, He's on trial. He has to logically, you know, work like a human using uh, interstellar dragon law, which I have not read up on, uh, to sort of find <laughs> a way to justify his his commitment to Kitty Pride and to humans and to Excalibur. And then there's the added encryption of him doing it in verse. So. Um, he's a fantastical animal in many, many ways. He's anthropomorphized. He's a companion animal. He's a pet, friend, confidant, whatever. Uh, he's also a dragon, so he's an animal that's not actually based in the real world. And then he's he's also an alien, which is yet another form of animal extremity. And then on top of that, he speaks and thinks in verse. So we have so many different levels of artificiality and construction and aestheticized animal experience uh, that it becomes more and more richly artistic, more and more less actual animal, less authentically wild and more human. And I think it's also really interesting that the big splash panel on the in the, in the book is where you basically, you see all these human surgeons trying to save him and you see them operating on him. You see all their tools, all that logic, all that technology. It looks a little bit like a kind of animal viv- vivisection or animal dissection. Yeah. They're not doing yeah. that. They're doing something else. And there's all these hands reaching out with all these tools and he's being intubated and all this other stuff. And then on the, the thing that fascinated me most about this issue is actually this first page is that there's this fantastic quote from Alice in Wonderland there. And it's, and it's a quote that is one of the most disturbing moments in the book where we realize that this little girl who has sort of gone off on her own down the rabbit hole into her own psyche, into her own whack-ass world, is, is got real potential schizophrenic concerns. She thinks she's somebody else. She doesn't want to be what society and culture wants her to be. She doesn't want to grow up. Some of that is about being a child. Some of that is about refusing to grow up. Some of it's about not wanting to be a traditional sort of Victorian female. Some of it is about Lewis Carroll's bizarre, ambivalent reaction to Alice Little. But that these particular passages, when this is, uh, it'll be no use. They're putting their heads, heads down and saying, come up again, dear. I shall only look up and say, who am I then? Tell me that first. And then if I like being that person, I'll come up. If not, I'll stay down here until I'm somebody else. Uh, which is this wonderful, playful view of, I'm going to stay in Wonderland, I'm going to stay in La La Land, Dreamland, I'm going to stay up in my own head. And the larger scene in Alice in Wonderland is just before she winds up uh, swimming through her own tears, a metaphor in the book that's been used by feminists for I don't even know how long, uh, looking at the idea of how women look at men as being very liquid and very loose and very uh, very full, over overwhelmed by their own emo- 
emotion, all that uh, traditional patriarchal hocus pocus. Um, yeah. And to have that plastered in front of Lockheed is clearly referring to him in Alice in Wonderland. She goes down into Wonderland. Uh, Wonderland is a dark subterranean sort of cavernous labyrinthine place. Here, Lockheed goes up in, into the trial. And there's, there's of course, there's a kangaroo court in Alice in Wonderland too, right? She's put on trial for her stance against conventional thinking and British hierarchies of royalty and place and being precocious and being smarter than what her handlers would like her to be. And Lockheed's the same way. Uh, so it's really interesting that we're, and very much again, like all these other early Excalibur stories that I love so much, we're mining British tradition, we're mining British farcical, farcical tradition, excuse me, and we're mining the world of the absurd. It is absurd to have a dragon trial and the trial sort of runs absurdly and it's even more absurd to have alien dragon trials. And there's just so much there that is so much about the very magical, unique, world of the talking animal comic so that was probably way more than you ever want to hear but there you go no i'm like so like <laughs> riveted and i'm like so happy that you brought up that first page because that was my favorite mm -hmm. page as well and oh, that idea that we're dissecting lockheed and that through the dissection of lockheed we're going to in theory learn something about ourselves i mean that gets back to unfortunately a andrew's criticism of the comic that lockheed's perspective on the characters leaves something to, to be desired but the idea of that as a concept is so 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 fascinating and i loved that thing that you said too about him going up because there is i would argue a problematic sort of thing going on here too that lockheed's moving up in the world by sort of his ambition to be human which is something that we often do to non-human characters sure, right, of all right, types yes. right yes and so yeah that's but that's getting back to some of the things that you were bringing up too in terms of the ways that we domesticate animals for our own egos rather than letting them truly be animal right i mean i wanted to ask you just a, like a couple more things about sort of the subversive aspects of animal comics because one of the things that you've written about animal comics is about underground animal comics and the sexual subversiveness of that but so this is in your chapter about it from the Roadledge companion Road to Road, uh yeah. gender and sexuality in comic book studies which i'm also lucky enough to appear in and, but, and, um, and I've actually taught your essay and students love it. So thank Oh, you. wow. Thank you. Yeah, I talk about Marvel swimsuit in that collection. Anyway, 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 getting back to animals. Um, but yeah, so then one of the interesting things that you talk about in that chapter are this is the sexual symbolism sort of of mm -hmm. animal comics. And, yes. you know, it's not a huge part of the comic that we have here, but it is something that we've talked about before in terms of the Lockheed and Kitty relationship. Right. And I don't want to take that to a weird place. We're not suggesting that the comic is suggesting that they have that type of relationship. Mm -hmm. But when you see <laughs> okay well we can we can i think we the can definitely just, suggesting that <laughs> i just want to be i just i want to be careful the comic about takes it, it to a very weird place yeah yeah uh, yes. yeah so there's 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 lots of different places we can go but i th thank you anna for the summary so yeah, so as we said, uh, one of the major themes in traditions in world animal comics has always been sort of the cuteness, right? And all, all you have to do is look at manga and see the cuteness, right? And see how they design animals as very, very humanoid, and they sort of design animals as actual design. They've turned them into little, D David Herman calls sort of anthropomorphized characters and spokes characters and things, little fascinating machines, uh, which is exactly what animal comics are. They are human logic, machine, reason-based ways of playing with that split between the human and the wild, between the animal and culture and society. And this comic is a great example of that. Not not only do we start with an operation dissection, I mean, we have a doctor, we have one of the, supposedly the best surgeon in England, right? Who's like, I think I just found a fifth lung. She has no idea what dragon anatomy is. We have no idea what it is to be a horse, a 
cat, a dog, a monkey, and we certainly have no idea what it is to be to be a dragon. And it doesn't matter how we dissect them or study their anatomy or their physiology or their cognition. There's something alien about that that scratches at our psyches that drives us crazy, and we want to know more. Then when we get to this, as 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 I think Anna said so brilliantly, right, this this sort of ascension of Lockheed into a technological marvel that's more than human, a trial that is very very human and very very rational and law based and sort of civilization centered. And then you have these dragons though who act very tribal. They are they have guards who have like, you know, uh, halberds and things. They're dressed in this weird quasi-medieval kind of outfits. There's the entire race is kind of assembled there. Uh, and then you've got the verse, which is, it would seem to me, yes, I give Scott Wilbell credit for even taking that on. Anyone who takes on a character that has to always be in verse, like Entergen, I mean, that's just really hard to do <laughs> and to keep it going through a whole story. That's why uh, one of my friends, he said, if I ever wrote a demon story, I would just make him mute. <laughs> like he doesn't want to speak because yeah, yeah. it's so hard. And, and I want to give him credit. It's also very cutesy. It's a very funny animal. It's very childlike and friendly to have this sort of Dr. Seussy kind of verse going on. There is not a single couplet in this story that's anywhere near Dr. Seuss quality, or even Lewis Carroll quality, honestly, who would use poetry to sort of attack adult suppositions of superiority constantly. So that's that's going on. Uh, but then when we get to the trial, and this is, I think, where we were going, one of the great bizarre hypocrisies of children's animal comics is they are completely desexualized, right? We're looking at bears and cats and dragons and animals and monkeys and pigs who have no genitals, who have sexes. They dress like men or women, or sometimes if you're Bugs Bunny, you cross-dress, right? And you, you, you're you very empowered by that. But these anthropomorphized little fascinating machines, uh, we have to hide the thing that makes animal life animal, which is procreation and survival and all the animal urges. And that's what a lot of the underground cartoonists do. They emphasize the sort of what humans would consider filthy or unacceptable or blasphemous or or unclean about animals just get it on in public because that's what an animal has to do right so yeah. uh, it's not polite it's not acceptable and it's certainly not family friendly as we have these sort of perverse needs to to make sure the children aren't aware of sexuality in that way and then what you get is all kinds of bizarre artistic and psychological repressions and seditions and you know uncle scrooge is definitely a definitely a drake he's definitely a male duck but we don't know where the hell the nephews come from we don't know donald duck is a, is a male duck he's a father figure but he's always uncle donald so it's uncle mm -hmm. scrooge always one step kind of uh kind of removed so when you have a companion animal story like you do with kitty and lockheed and clearly there's a sense of love there right they're very very intimate they're devoted to each other he protects her she cares a great deal about him you can see her blaming herself for all this going on and this is why i asked earlier to sort of see where this started i didn't have the issue shame on me uh where Lockheed gets hurt. It's fascinating that the beginning of that terrible West Coast Avengers story with Dr. Doom, um, <laughs> that she's, and, and this is very common, we can all relate to this, anyone who has a pet, she, at first thing she does is chastise Lockheed at the beginning of that long story for getting in her way and spilling the dishes, and all the dishes are breaking and everything, and we do that all oh, the time, yeah. oh stupid dog, yeah. get, get get out of my way, oh cat, you made, you tore up my favorite thing, or I'm so upset with you, and then that adds to that sort of anthrocentric guilt that, oh, you know, you're my pet, and, and you're sort of a nuisance, and you're in my way, and we use that to project a lot of our frustrations with just everyday life onto our pets but then at night when we're lonely or sad and they get up in the bed with us we're like oh you're my best friend you know <laughs> yes. you and we're sort of mirroring and projecting all this and we have that in the Lockheed story too so there is a sense of incredible interspecies intimacy here 
there always has been between Kitty and Lockheed. They both love each other very, very much. And if you're human, you're breaking that love into, you know, Ophelia, Eros, Agape. And if you're an animal, I'm not sure there's that much difference. And the story almost by accident perhaps sort of says, I mean, how does Lockheed win this trial? He's not very good at defending himself. His actual answer is he just loves this person and he's his own person, very much like Alice doesn't really win her trial. She just blows it up. And he sort of says, well, I don't, I don't need this system. I purposely reject the flock mentality. I want to be with humans. I want to be part of the, I want to be with the heroes and I want to be with Kitty. I think it's really easy to read something sensual into that, something potentially intimately physical into that also. So yes, it puts us in a weird place, but I mean, we're talking about Excalibur and we're talking about verse, verse spouting dragons in a trial. So I (laughs) I, I, I think the weirder and the wackier, the better. I think it's just the reason I wanted to be careful about it is because I want to be careful when we're talking about queerness and bestiality and sure. some of the like oh, yeah. sort of right. cultural like right. things bound up in that because when we're talking about spaces of possibility like we are talking about fantasy spaces right we're not right. advocating for like people having these kinds of relationships with their pets and stuff it's more just like a thing that we can explore in terms of you know what are our emotional investments in these animals and stuff and how are our relationships with animals complicated and I know that we're talking about that in an academic sense and everything but I just wanted to be kind of sure. clear oh, yeah, about yeah, that no, for those yeah listeners who aren't sort of coming at it from that background but i mean i'll I'll bring i'll bring andrew and mav into this conversation to talk about the kitty lockheed relationship too and sort of your thoughts on it because i don't know what to do with this aspect of the relationship i really don't it can be interesting possibly and yet i find it makes me quite uncomfortable and i think where i'm coming at in terms of my discomfort with it is because kitty doesn't always seem totally aware of what the nature of kind of lockheed's sentience is even though she has deep respect for him and treats him that yeah. way she does treat him like a pet as well i don't know i'm just curious about yeah 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 i have so the reason i caution it i think this story like literally this story by Lubdell wants you to believe that lockheed the dragon is sexually attracted to Catherine Pride, the human mutant girl. Like, yes, um, be- 100%. Because of the words. That, so when you say, did anything happen? Depends on who you're writing, who's writing it. I think in the imagination of Scott Lobdell, Lockheed wants in Kitty's pants. Do I see their relationship that way? No, because I believe that in the imagination of Chris Claremont, specifically and other and some other writers but not all i think claremont believes that lockheed is an entirely sentient being and mostly allows now there's some claremont's not a perfect writer i think andrew you'll agree with this he's not perfect but i think mostly claremont allows kitty to treat lockheed as though he is not a pet kitty is very particular in most claremont books to say lockheed is her friend not her pet and that's weird and it's in a way that's different than when i talk about my cat right like i talk about my cat as though she's a roommate i talk about my cat as though as though she has feelings that i know i mean i think she has feelings but i talk about her in a way as though i'm implying human intelligence and human characteristics to her that i know i'm projecting onto her i think kitty understands lockheed is an alien that mostly i think she allows to you know in as much as she is friends with other aliens i think she always talks about lockheed like he's a member of the team like whether it's the x-men or this now not all the other x-men do but i think she understands that and i think lockheed understands that about her but in my head canon they're friends she's happy for lockheed whenever he meets up with the dragon girl and she's like oh lockheed's yeah, getting yeah. something like they, like she's always 
into that. So like, I don't think that they're interested in each other in that way, but I do think that some writers disagree with me. And in as much as I'm giving Lobdell the, the rope to hang himself, that's what a, it, it's an uncomfortable thing, but I think that's what he wants out of this story because Lockheed keeps calling her pretty and I want to be with her. And he, he says things like that. So I have to take him at his word. And he specifically rejects his dragon fiance yes, to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Katie, the, right. the, uh, the jilted dragon bride seems to seems to lead kind of in that direction. Right. So, uh, and I think there's also I didn't mention this, but not only is is um, that we have this sort of dragon pet character, this companion pet character, but you know, Kitty Pride and Lockheed are certainly fitting in into that tradition of Little Orphan Annie and Sandy, or Charlie Brown and Snoopy, or Tippy and their family. And there's this whole world of she's she's the youngest X Man, right? I mean, she's or not the youngest, but a teenager. Uh, there's this sort of there's this cute young factor with the with the added pet kind of there's this kind of companionship story uh and i think you're right i think Lockheed loves her in a way that would seem bizarre for a pet and she always insists that the pet is not a pet but we all do that right we're all like oh our pets aren't pets they're part of the family and when we lose them it's harder for us so in in one sense whether it's it's just bad writing or adventurous writing or just a pure accident he's showing us those uh strings behind our connection with our with our companion animals so well, I wonder if I can ask you, Andrew, to kind of relate this to gender and what Kitty represents as a character, because I find some of the... Tr I'm struggling with what yours is because I, I want to say transgressive or subversive relationship with Lockheed, but again, I don't want anybody to take that the wrong way that I'm saying, like, Kitty having sex with her dragon would be a good thing. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that the ways that she acknowledges his humanity in ways that she wouldn't necessarily have to might speak to her ability to have that empathy for people. And we've talked about her face and her queerness and how this relates to her being a boundary pushing character like do you find that her relationship Andrew with Lockheed is sort of bound up in some of those ways of understanding Kitty as a character yeah I do I, I think maybe just to push it in the the opposite direction one of the of like course. I aggressively hate I, I hate this like I absolutely hate this <laughs> oh okay <laughs> this sure portrayal of Lockheed. yeah and yeah. I, I hate myself for hating it because everything Dan and Matt have said is brilliant and insightful but I still hate it. I think Lobdell might be trying to set up a sort of sexual fantasy. The idea of Lockheed having access to Kitty's intimate spaces without her knowledge. And that is yeah, a Yeah, that, that's my issue, fantasy. Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's that. Now, on the other element that, that we've talked about, and I think Mav really got to it, um, I'll, I'll work through Adam Roberts here, who was working from Darkos Event, the idea of estrangement and cognition, which suggests that when you have a fantasy construct, it's delightful, but it's always based in a grounded reality that's familiar. Lockheed, to me, is a dog. He, he's just a, he, he's a dog. He's Kitty's dog. Uh, but he's a dragon because we're in a fantasy setting, and that's way more fun and, and cool. I think she treats him like a dog. Uh, and just as Dan says, the, the way that we sort of over-exaggerate the, the human qualities of our companion animals. So to have Lockheed become this sentient creature with like an abandoned fiancé and an entire society behind him and the capacity to represent himself like Jimmy Stewart at a tribunal, <laughs> to me, you are changing who Lockheed is at a fundamental level because Lockheed is defined by his relationship to Kitty and you've altered that. And, and I, like, I, I don't, I feel like we should be upset because Lockheed is a character too. And he's been around for yeah. a long time. So wait, can I just ask but you I'm to clarify? So no, 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 that's fine. Because are you th saying that you think in the Claremont version of Lockheed, that Lockheed wasn't intended to be a sentient character? I think he's in between. He, he's like a very, very smart dog. Think Chewbacca. Uh yeah. Chewbacca well, well, see, is a dog. That's my question right there. Okay, so here's the thing. Is he oh, Chewbacca or is he Snoopy? <laughs> Snoopy is a dog. Snoopy is absolutely a dog. I don't think Chewbacca is a dog. 
I think yeah. Chewbacca. I think Chewbacca is a dog who can co-pilot the plane. Oh, see, I think you know I mean? yeah, I it's think Chewbacca is exactly dog. the opposite way. I well, okay, well let me ask then: is um is R two a dog? Because is R two a dog? R two D two? Like I mean, yes, I get these robot, but is but like it's narrowing in, right? Like I think to me, Chewbacca has never been a pet. I it, it it's always been oh he's friends with a dog man that's cool you know like like I but I but very much <laughs> like Chewbacca's more werewolf than dog to me like I've never seen Chewbacca as less than anyone he's no more a dog than Spock is in in, in Star Trek right he's just a different wow. like I've always seen Chewbacca that way but Snoopy I'm not there Snoopy is a pet and I and I and I and I think I see I see Lockheed somewhere in between, and it's that's why it's harder for me. Well, because animals can often straddle that boundary in comics, because part of the big tradition of animal comics is that the animal can sometimes break the fourth wall and talk to us and have that sentience mm-hmm. that exists in thought bubbles and comments that their owner is not necessarily aware of. You know, Garfield comics, for instance, right? Does John hear what Garfield is saying? Presumably not. And then we could do Garfield without Garfield, and John sounds like a very unstable individual. But <laughs> Um, Which is brilliant, uh, by the but- way. I know so brilliant Um, and shout out to Shelf Dust that's been running a wonderful fabulous series of short essays about Garfield that just wrapped up and if our listeners are not aware of that they should definitely check that out but anyway Dan you wanted to jump in a second ago so oh yeah no it wasn't it wasn't really really all that significant it's it's just one of the other things that tends to go along with any story where we anthropomorphize an animal whether it's you know Jack London or Snoopy or Calvin and Hobbes or Lockheed is uh, the the animal and the alien are always very closely connected, right? And the animalized alien speaks to issues of evolution, speaks to issues of race, speaks to issues. So we we can read Chewbacca as a overhumanized, tribalized, you know, inherently racist, sort of backward, missing link, yeti kind of character, or we can see him as a dog that does the thing we want all our dogs to do, which is get up and drive for us, right? And, and, and sort of know what to do. And there's also sort of that noble savage, right? He's nine thousand nine hundred years old, or whatever it is. He's and he's really watching out for, just like Lockheed is always watching out for Kitty Pride, always protecting, always fighting. He would clearly sacrifice himself for Han Solo. Lockheed would clearly sacrifice himself and attempts to here for Kitty Pride, and that's that love. That's that assumed human love that the animals that we take care of we like we need to think they have that for us and i think that can yeah. be so intimate that it can become more than just my pet or we cohabitate there's that idea of companion right we don't usually say companion unless we're meaning something very very intimate with the same tension in doctor who with the companions right so there's that idea of they are companions and they are uh, in, inter interspecies companions and they respect and trust and love each other and that is problematic when we start pulling the yarn off of off of, off of that ball because we're not sure exactly what's being implied uh we know there is intense intimacy there uh and to make him an alien makes it even more fun uh and then there's one other angle you can look at too but i'll see i'll where wherever anna wants to go with it well can i just <laughs> say that that kind of highlights something for me because I, I think the reason i hate this issue <laughs> is because for me this is the equivalent of a chewbacca fan watching the star wars christmas special <laughs> and all the Wookiees are yeah. living a sitcom life. You know what I mean? It's, it's that to me. I want to ask, but again, I'm recognizing this is subjective. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. Me, oh yeah, yeah. Overreacting, like crazy. I so hate it so much. I so want to know, and I mean, and I, I mean, we're gonna get tweets about this because I want to know where our listeners are. The I think the fundamental question here is Chewbacca's humanity, right? Like, or or <laughs> Lock or Lockheed's, because so Lockheed I think is trickier because Lockheed is often presented specifically as a pet the x-men who aren't kitty 
absolutely treat him as a pet, right? Like that's not, so there's no question there. I think there is a, like, I'm not sure why Lockheed has to be a pet and Hepzibah from, from the Star Jammers Jammers. is clearly a girlfriend. She's Corsair's girlfriend. She is a skunk lady, but she is, (laughs) but she's, but he treats her as a lady, right? Sikorsky, who's not human at all is a teammate right on on that team he's uh, he's a bug thing but like they're treated in a humanoid way that i think lockheed is not often treated that way but i think that is the x-men to me that's the x-men sort of prejudicially assuming a human binary that you know either you're a pet or you're not in a way that i don't think scans in a universe of varying sentient beings right it's hard like chewbacca i think i think han is more chewbacca's pet than the other way around chewy lives longer chewy's smarter (laughs) (laughs) like i think like i i I don't i just i cannot call chewbacca a dog i think that's um to me that's that is a and that's why i'm really curious what our listeners are going to say because to me that is a i think that's unfair to chewy and i'm not sure on lockheed i i just i don't know lockheed's more in that r2 range for me like he's not quite human but he's smarter than a dog you know he's just it, it weirds me out more with lockheed to have like a sexual fantasy for the reasons anna said than it does with chewbacca which who i think of is exactly like i think of Hepzibah. okay well i did want to touch briefly <laughs> on sort of nightcrawler's relation to animal metaphors here and we're kind of going in that direction yeah, yeah. so let's do that a little bit because i mean i think one of the things that i find interesting about when we're talking about lockheed's sentience i do think about that 85 cochran miniseries which features kurt and lockheed having a team up having a cross-dimensional adventure and Kurt's relationship with Lockheed I always find interesting I find Kurt does refer to Lockheed like a person a lot of the time it's not consistent but it gets me back to something that Mav mentioned in one of our Inferno issues I think it was you Mav that you said the act of declaring humanity means Kurt will give you humanity like he doesn't have a problem doing that and that's part of his it's the gargoyle sort of yes the gargoyle tells Kurt that it's alive so Kurt's like all right I'm good with that Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And that speaks to Kurt's sort of foundational empathy that is based in his own experience of outsiderness. So since we have Dan here talking about animals and we've already introduced some sexual concepts and stuff, I was sort of curious about if he had thoughts about how Nightcrawler relates to that at all. Because you did mention, Dan, about the interesting thing of Nightcrawler having certain bestial features. And we talk about sexy Nightcrawler a lot on this podcast. (laughs) Obviously, I've got thoughts about this as well. But I mean, if you have thoughts about it, Dan, and I'm interested to hear it. Like, is that part of what makes this character sexy? Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. Uh, yeah. Uh, th- so can I throw in one thing first and then I'll get over to the Of course, color. of course. So the other thing that, that I haven't talked about yet is, so we, we have this trial, right? Which is a very human thing, even though it's an alien dragon thing. There's this long tradition of projecting trials onto the animal world, right? The oh, yeah. Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls and all of, all of Aesop's fables and Animal Farm and all that kind of stuff where... You know, the, the fission between the, the honesty of the animal world or the animals debating a concept like love or justice or whatever it is really relates badly on us. In many ways, and it's not the only way to look at it, but in many ways, the contemporary version of that is the fusion of animal and technology. So it's fascinating that we have all those medical apparatus on Lockheed at the beginning. Lockheed is named after a jet, right? And it's even an ex-jet. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes Kitty so fascinating is her inherent knowledge of technology, right? She's a gadgeter. She, she does all these designs. She's... She's super gifted with the uh, with sort of tinkering. There's the whole when the sp- for no reason that I can probably fi- I've read it two or three times. But I still can't figure out why the spaceship is in danger during the trial. But Lockheed knows how to get up there. They fall asleep, but so what? You know, it's a big spaceship. But he knows how to fix it. So there's this 
this contrast between animals and technology, right? Snoopy and all of his stuff in his house and his, um, his like Sopwith camel, right? Uh, Uncle Scrooge and all of his inventions or Gyro Gearloose and all of his inventions where when we feature the animal, we also wind, wind up featuring technology. And in some cases, when we feature the animal, we reject technology. And I think and you're a much more of an X-Men expert than I am. So I'm going to ask you this question. When we get to Nightcrawler, would you say Nightcrawler is the most self-aware of the X-Men? Does that seem reasonable? That's a difficult question. I think that his empathy or one can of go the, in. one of the most self-aware. Yeah, his yeah. His empathy can go in that direction, and mm-hmm. we have talked about him being on the verge of being a self-reflexive character in some mm-hmm. past issues mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he's a character who knows stories too, right, and right. interacts with mm-hmm. stories and sort of creates his identity in relation to performance and stories. But we've also talked about the limits of that, how in something like Excalibur number 31, which, you know, admittedly it's a Lobdell issue, not a Claremont issue, so how much do we want to say that this is quote-unquote true Nightcrawl or whatever? How much do we want to count that as canon or not is a question that we could ask but at the same time he's not always as aware as he could be of his own participation in performance so i think i want him to be aware of that participation in performance and to have that distance and self-reflexivity but he doesn't always so it's a tension there yeah i i would rather listen to nightcrawler speak than cyclops all day long right so and i think i'd I'd rather sit down sit down and uh here's my family coming home but i think i'd rather animals yes animals animals coming in um i i think i'd much rather sit down and have coffee with nightcrawler than i would wolverine right so there's something that's very very human about him i also like that and i I had it's been a long time since i read a lot of x-men comics in a row but the consistent like my friend my friend right whenever he's talking to people oh my my friend and and always in german in his native tongue right there's this there's this very animal companion pet kind of quality about him so there there is there is definitely something very animal about nightcrawler's fascinating sexuality i don't think there's any question there i mean we've got the blue velvet fur we've got the tail we've got the agility we've got the sort of languorous poses that he's always doing but there's also something very animal in the way he's always supporting people he's always thinking about people i mean he's thinking Megan a lot, but he's also thinking about Captain Britain. He's thinking about Kitty. He's always concerned about how people are doing and their progress through their own story arcs. That's a very, very empathetic and a true animal thing. We like to think animals are more empathetic than they are in some ways, but he picks up on those cues. And then he's kind of, and again, I'm not a nightcrawler expert, but he seems to be often very anti-technological. He doesn't need tools or enhancements or cybernetics to do the things that make him super. He's more than human when it comes to moving around and acrobatics he's more than human when it comes to transportation he can bam fall over the place right so these are very very fascinating monstrously animal characteristics and the monster is always attractive right so there's always something there that's and the monstrous always questions and tests what is very clear and conventional and normative and familiar and uh yeah his 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 animal magnetism is legit and it has a lot to do with that tail and those hands and i you know i think his hair would be sexy if he wasn't blue it doesn't really matter he's got great hair. <laughs> um, there's 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 just something there that sort of sets him i mean and, and all superhero bodies are sexual right we know this um megan is a bombshell captain uh, captain britain is a big beefcake right this is all very very clear but his is a different kind of alien slash animal anthropomorphized sensuality uh and strength uh, lots of strength and and i think not just physical strength but uh, sort of mental prowess as well. There's a there's an agency and an interest in teams and in groups and in communities that I, 
at least when I read it and again, it gets questioned or it gets abused or it gets hurt. I mean, that's one of the things that makes his first appearance so powerful. He's being chased like Frankenstein, right? And by a demon, by a crowd that wants to set him on fire. He's been connected to circuses, which have a long and terrible tradition of training and, def- and defiling and abusing animals, right? So uh, he's he, he has that animal rights trend to, to sort of think about as well. And I mean, his relationship with Wolverine too, you know, yes. someone who struggles yes. with his animal instincts and he right. and Kurt have a particular bond, which we actually are going to talk about a little bit in the next issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a guest who wants to talk about that. But yeah, I love where you're going with that, Dan, that part of this defining empathy of this character and the identifiableness of this character might actually go back to something like animal comics or just our mm-hmm. feelings about oh, animals sure. in general and that that can make this character, that can be part of this character's accessibility, which is something I talk mm-hmm. about so often with this character, like both in a sexual context and outside of that. And that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and also just dawns on me also, I mean, there aren't that many X-Men with fangs. He has fangs. So he, yes. he, he has incisors that are meant to tear flesh. When Megan gets out of control, she has it too, right? When she, or her, her, when she morphs, when she atavistically morphs backwards or becomes more superpowered in terms of the animal in the wild, then we have kind of a nightmare version of Nightcrawler, right? She would rather be Marilyn Monroe. She'd rather be Britney Spears because she feels that she's more human that way, that she gets the attention of people better that way. She gets to be in human relationships that way. Nightcrawler doesn't need that thing. He, he's, I mean, he wants to be accepted, of course, and he is. But he's accepted, I think, because he's so incredibly unique and so so good-hearted. Well, and I love the way he sits on the boundaries of things because he's mm-hmm. got the fangs, but the mo- way that he most often displays them is in a very warm and winning yes. smile, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know he does sometimes mm-hmm. exploit his own demonic features to intimidate people. You know, in something like God Loves, Man Kills, he threatens to bite somebody and his fangs are very prominent there, something like that, right? And he does that a few different times in comics. But still, (laughs) the ways that he sits at that boundary, I think, is part of the fascination with him because he's a character who is both human and animal, and you can desire the animal aspects of him, but it's not bestiality because there are animal aspects that are incorporated into a very definitely human person, right? And that can be like a lot of the appeal on a lot of different levels. Um, I did want to talk about, I mean, Andrew, you've already talked about how annoyed you are with sort of the world that's set up for Lockheed here. And we should talk about it a little <laughs> bit more because, you know, about the nature of the society and whether we find anything sort of of interest or value here. I already complained briefly that I don't like some of the presumptions it's making about how much better human society is than other types of societies. But I can I give you, I'll give you a first chance at it, Andrew, because I know you're particularly annoyed at this particular portrayal of Loki, but what did you make of the dragon society here you can sound off on it if you want i don't know there's not much to them they're kind of like a gross stereotype of a kangaroo court uh, exactly as dan was saying um they're selfish obviously they have no interest in Lockheed's happiness they're representative of this sort of enforced identity rather than self-actualization which is what Lockheed ultimately stands for at the trial i don't think there's much to them to be perfectly honest i, I think lobdell wasn't really thinking about making them interesting thoughts on that Mav? i think he was thinking about making it interesting i think that the problem is i don't know what the man's personal politics are i'm judging purely on his writing of labdell's that i've read and i think philosophically he's in a different place than i am i think you're right i think it's a kangaroo court that assumes that the human society it is positions lockheed as i have found a better way i think labdell sees the dragons as a simplistic star trek kind of borg like society where he's like oh well of course they would be they'd be a hive mind and he's found individuality so he's going to stay with the humans and i think that's his message which i think he thinks is deep and i think 
I, I mean, I think he's trying to do a thing. It's not the thing that I would do. And that's where I'm trying to, like, not judge it. Because, I, I mean, obviously, if you've listened to the last three episodes of this show, I have no problem with judging Scott Lobdell. Um, like, um, I think that what he's trying to do here is more clever and more interesting than he than the last 66 pages of comics that he wrote. I just think it's, I don't even think it's a failure. I was going to say I think it's a failure. I think it's not where I want to go. So it's less interesting to me because it's not the story I care for, but I appreciate the attempt in a weird way. Like I, like I see what he's trying to do and I just see Lockheed as a different character. And this alternate universe that is the Scott Liddell Lockheed, I mean, I guess fine if your message is humans are great and other species can suck it. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, again, and I mentioned this briefly, but just to put a finer point on it, you know, there are certain tropes bound up in the representation of Lockheed society. You know, the idea that they don't have individuality is a trope that gets applied in a lot of racist ways to mm-hmm. people in various mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's bound up in the Cold War and communism and the and ways that we think about... Yeah, and just, yeah, yeah, and that's is. that's how he sees it, and mm-hmm. and he's not he's not unique in that respect. So like I so but then, no, of course this isn't a Lobdell thing. This right. is a trope thing that extends so far beyond Lobdell. And, yeah, and and the reason I think I, the reason I'm willing to like consider the interest in it is you know for work I and the three of you have taught several you know canonized authors who also have this take. Sure, yes. and I you know I'm. Yeah. I, I don't think it's fair of me to say this is worse than, I don't know, Tarzan, because just because of the philosophy. It can be worse because the writing's not as good, <laughs> but not because of but the I philosophy. Mean, or, or anything, right? Like, I mean, it's a right. problem with Star Trek, too, that the yes. aliens are always supposed yeah. to want to become human. Worf and Data are supposed to want to become human, and that's and, something that always Spock. frustrated me in TNG. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. And the fact that it venerates a certain version of humanity, too, it is very much like the self-image of white Western patriarchal society that these others are supposed to identify with, right? Anyway, Dan, did you have thoughts about that? Oh, I was just completely completely agreeing with everybody else and what they're saying with that sort of imperialist uh, post-colonial racist concern is very, very clear. Just throw in my end, uh, I think it's an interesting idea to fold in the sort of judgmental alien kangaroo court from from beyond uh, in the same way that you do in Alice in Wonderland or the same way that you do with Parliament of Fowls or the same way you do there's a, a famous moment in Pogo where Pogo is, uh, is is plays Alice in Wonderland and is put on trial by characters who are meant to represent the McCarthyites uh, and it's a kangaroo court I think there's a little of that going on here too and I think the verse is also start trying to play with those ideas of, uh, of Chaucer and Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear all of these dead white guys who actually were critical of the status quo uh, in some interesting ways, but also very disturbing in their own right. To me, it just does, it, it just isn't well done. If the verse was just pitch perfect, if it was just sharp, tight, and shockingly potent, and if the actual art that Lockheed does with his weird techno brush uh, would actually represent something, then I think it would be a much more interesting aberration or change from from what we've done. But that's been always been for me. That's been the fun of what of what Excalibur can do. It, it you know it, it's not afraid to fail in a big big way. I think that whole trial is kind of a failure, but I like what they're doing along the way. Uh, and if I just want to throw in the one thing I think is cool about it, uh, and it and it reminded me a lot, this is a strange connection, but we're going back to TV again. Sometimes the best TV episodes are just, you know, rewriting the pilot and introducing the character yeah, over yeah. again. And I think these big splash pages throughout where he does a portrait of Nightcrawler, a portrait of Megan, a por- portrait of Shadowcat, 
portrait of Captain Britain. These big full page ones. I'm, the one I'm most disappointed in is the Phoenix. She gets like half a page. And that, that <laughs> really sort of ticked me off. Um, and and he's yeah. sort of celebrating the wonderful muteness of all of these characters and using that as his hardcore evidence for falling in love with humanity and individuality. I think that's really interesting that we're focusing on a alien tribalized animal using technological art to celebrate the human. I mean, it's all of our yeah. wish fulfillment when it comes to animal fantasies coming true. On the other hand, I think the splash pages are the best parts of the comic. Uh, and I think they're all meant to mirror or uh, reflect on that very first splash page where he's under the knife, right? And he's being sort of dissected and explored, and he's dissecting and exploring these human characters as well. So I think that's a nice idea. The whole structure of the comic reminds me, and I think this is probably the most famous example, of Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1 with the Sinister Six, where we have this huge oh. story. And we, yeah. it's really an excuse for Steve Ditko to build yes. pinups in, in, into the story as it goes. <laughs> and we're really using those splash pages in these big, exciting ways. But they're also they're crying out to be ripped out and put up on walls, right? They're saying, take me. I'm awesome. I'm gorgeous. Pop me up on your wall and buy another copy so you have to do it again or whatever it's going to be. There's something so rich about these uh, these splash panels that are used in myriad of ways. And he really does do a pretty good – got to give Lockheed credit and maybe Lobdell credit. He's pretty good at defining the core conflicts of each character. Uh, and he does little capsule summaries on each one. I think that's the best part of the book for me. Oh, Dan, now I just want to talk about that Spider-Man annual. I talked about it, <laughs> I talked about it extensively in my dissertation. I did a conference paper about it really? recently. Cool. I did, I did. Well, just some, talking specifically we'll just talk about, about that. I know, talking specifically about those splash pages oh, and the wow. way that they instantiate, you know, Spider-Man's relation to otherness and the ways that villains embody that relative uh -huh. to him. And oh, oh wow. It's a great issue. Do you have this written down somewhere where I can read it? Yeah, I do. I've been wanting <laughs> okay. to turn it into a turn it into a proper article for ages. So maybe okay. maybe you'll have to wait on that oh, for me fine. to write it down better. But <laughs> all right, let's do some final thoughts and think about wrapping up here. Uh, I'll do mine first because I don't know. Whatever it is, what it is. I just wanted to touch base with like because Dan brought it up too, talking about those flash pages, just how weird Lobdell's Rachel is. I just, it's been getting to me more and more and more. You know, I was pretty kind to Excalibur number 35. And then ever since then, I feel like I'm regretting it because it's just gotten worse and worse. Like there's some stuff in this comic and a lot of it is the art in this particular issue too. But the scene where Brian goes up on the roof to comfort Rachel oh and she's God. sitting there doing oh. the most outrageous pinup porn pose and, mm -hmm. you know, saying, I was just thinking about the time I tried to kill Celine. And it's like <laughs> a porn parody of Claremont X-Men in a bad way. Cause that could be a good thing, but in a bad way. And I just don't understand what's going on with this character in this book. I think it's tied in with the Brian. I think the fact that it's Brian and Rachel together in the scene is indicative of to Labdell, Brian is the hero of this book and Rachel is the troubled woman. I don't think it's any deeper than that. I think this is how he sees the characters and I don't think he's ironically making Brian team leader. He's, you know, Brian is being sensitive. He's a good guy who's going to check on his on this, you know, poor troubled girl that he has taken in, which is how Brian sees himself and that's how Labdell sees him. I don't think it's ironic. I think that's just it. <laughs> <laughs> like Ugh, yeah. i mean labdell's i mean brian has said that during the claremont run part of it you know like brian thinks that he's helping everybody oh i'm going to take care of these girls so i'm taking them shopping and he doesn't get that they don't need him and i don't think that labdell <laughs> they don't need him i think that's well, i don't think it's deeper than that. i agree 
Lobdell doesn't get the complexity of Rachel's sexuality and what it represents because he just keeps reducing it to people gazing at her and just making her the object of the gaze in ways that are so intense. It's gotten super uncomfortable to me at this point in time. One and it's one, one more issue. I just know. I know. <laughs> I completely agree. And yet she doesn't get a pinup. She doesn't really get a mm-hmm. splash page, which I find really strange. And yet TechNet does. They get a better panel and the Warwolves get a better panel and Widget gets a better sort of pictorial celebration than she does. And all all we really get is that weird sort of TNA pose doubled up on us and the very unkind facial close-ups, which are just horrid, but but just weird. That's also Um, Uber, not just, not just Lipdell. I mean, yeah, I know, I know. I want to, I know, but at the same time, because there's been been this consistent problem with Rachel, um, with Lobdell writing Rachel, I just sort of, it's feeding into that for me. Andrew, I'll give you a chance to do final thoughts and then I'll come to, come to Dan for the last one. But if you have something, now's the time. Yeah, I think maybe just kind of like um, uh, do a bit of a sounding on where we are. We keep talking about this sort of charitable, and I keep being <laughs> gripey and complaining. <laughs> one thing I just want to kind of reiterate for our, our listeners is this is a comic series that is worth four very busy people with advanced degrees <laughs> coming together 30 yeah. years later to talk about it. Excalibur Absolutely. is special, Absolutely. and it sets a high bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we need to, yeah. I don't know, forgive Labdell for being a comics writer that's totally cool but he's not just a comics writer he's writing excalibur at this point mm. and i think it's he okay know for us to be a little bit harsher to him yeah he didn't know that he but he but he, but yeah you're and right that's the problem yeah. <laughs> yeah i just want to point out like mine because dan actually pointed to the panel but then you didn't talk about it colin's in this book look it's colin oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah and you know he'll come back Believe it or not, because, you know, we ch- sort of joked about like when, you know, way back when he disappeared in issue, is it three? And we we're like, oh, we're not going to explain this for a while. There's Colin. I don't know why Lockheed knows about him because Lockheed's never met him and, and Widget can't really talk about him. But, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so th- th- thank you for mentioning that because I haven't read every single issue up to this point. I've been working through it. I'm like, when did he find out about this? He does so not. I'm glad you um, brought that, that up. That kid, th- there's this kid here and there he is. And I just want to, I just want our listeners to be aware of him because, you know, we might be addressing this soon not to, not today <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that Mav. dan any final thoughts to wrap up our fascinating discussion about this issue uh, well my biggest final thought is just gratitude to all of you for all of your wonderful insights and presentation. it's been a really 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 fun uh evening uh and you know whenever i say the words animal comics most people run and hide so <laughs> it was really oh nice to goodness. actually get, get to chat about it so i appreciate that overall i think it's it's a really really interesting flawed and ultimately failed installment of a fascinating series again i really value the sort of bravery we've got on here and i also think you're right i get the feeling throughout this story that lobdell was sort of told do something that won't start anything stop the story like you said you need to tread water we're just gonna we're just gonna hold off for the bigger story plans we've got going on. I sense editorial control in this story a little more than I do some others. Yeah. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. And I think maybe that's why he's, maybe he's thinking, well, I'll just tell a cute story about rhyming dragons and I'll base it all around that. Uh, but then almost by accident, one of the things I really like about the story actually is the whole story is about a, again, an alien animal deliberating and supporting and ultimately endorsing the individuality of humanity, right? And he has to, and as, as hokey as it is, he leaves his bride who forgives him i don't know why she forgives him (laughs) Uh, that's that's another really strange moment but he leaves his flock his his community-based sort of herd uh and comes back with the chance that he might still die we're not really sure if he's gonna live so he's sort of a 
pro-human animal martyr. But then the story ends with the X-Men returning, only they're not really the X-Men, and we find out who they are, we see that they're actually very, very animal. And it's the other kind of beast, the predatory, also tribal, also sort of herd-like animal that, that has something else really, really dangerous and difficult about it. Lockheed wants to celebrate and support all the wonderful surface uh, qualities and cerebral qualities of humanity, uh, the war wolves want to masquerade as humans, right? They use humans as camouflage. So uh, kind of the ultimate animal comics nightmare there, that if we turn animals into talking people because it makes us feel good. In this case, they turn people into talking animals so they can prey on us. So I think it's an interesting oh. distinction. But we, we may see them again in the future. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Sorry for the spoiler. No, no, that's okay. It's an old okay. comic book, Dan. I think the spoilers okay. are already out there. In the okay. world. <laughs> All right, thanks. Um, the very last thing I'm going to do is to just do a brief spotlight of a sword strokes letter because I have a good one here. Um, so I have a letter from Crystal Williams. It's the first letter in the sword strokes letters page of this issue. Dear sword strokes. First of all, I would like to assure you that there are more female readers than you think, but let's face it yours is a mostly male production and we girls are a bit shy and a little scared to admit we read and participate or create comic art i have studied comics and graphic art though i prefer japanese animation and appreciate the hard work that goes into a monthly title i would like to thank you for bringing back rachel summers since her introduction in the x-men she has been my favorite every male seems to be hung up on kitty why they are missing a very beautiful and loving individual in rachel another thank you for replacing mr claremont sorry chris all that cross-time adventuring was quite confusing <laughs> keep up the good work i was so with her i was so with her i was like oh i love this you know you're taking a stand for female readers and expressing your affection for rachel and then you're like see you later chris and you're like oh you're not gonna be happier with lobdell's rachel crystal i don't know thank you crystal for your for your racial fandom we appreciate you Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in perfume and petty And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I grew thin and threadbare. I tried to guide men who meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has gone. So, Dan, we are grateful beyond measure for your insight on this comic and its complicated cultural contexts. Um, before we go, though, we must remind our lovely listeners about where they can find you and some of the wonderful things that you get up to. So, where can people find you and what work of yours should they be checking out? Oh, my goodness. Wow. I, 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 I haven't had a plug in a long time. I'm grateful. Um, <laughs> if, uh, you want, if you want a moment for your, for your <laughs> dog situation to calm down, you can. Yeah, no. Well, they're yeah. I don't know what's wrong with them. They're they're both they're both being animal. So it so it goes. Yeah. Anyway, um, go ahead. So uh, actually, funny you should say that because just uh, just today I got in the mail the newest edition of Fantagraphics Carl Barks Library, which is the Donald Duck compilation Balloonatics, and I and a bunch of other wonderful comic scholars, including my good friend Craig Fisher, uh, have been doing the annotations in these stories for years now. And it's a real to me. It's a, it's a, it's it's like a dream come true because I really I loved comics always, but I fell deeply deeply in love with comic structure and comic storytelling through Carl Barks on that trip out west, uh, and to be able to read these stories and make comments on them and sort of show other people all of the fine points of what this Disney auteur did is just something very very special for me. 
So that is out now. Uh, the Lunatics is out. Uh, there's lots of really sort of complicated scholarly anthologies that I won't bore you with. Uh, I'm also working on some animal comic stuff for uh, some, uh, some upcoming anthologies. And I'm going to be doing reviews of the Big Marble exhibit in Chicago and the Bill Baldwin exhibit in Chicago for uh, the International Journal of Comic Art in the next few weeks. So watch for those. Uh, and please do argue with me because those are incredible exhibits and they really deserve further discussion. Uh, and then I'm, if I'm lucky, I'm going to get do reviews of the recent OSU exhibits, the uh, the Century of Dog cartoons and the oh, yeah. uh, Pogo exhibit also. So those should be out at, uh, in maybe probably before Christmas as well. So there. <laughs> we will link a bunch of these things in our show notes and tweet them out as they become available. And yeah, some of your other work on animal comics that people can can check out that's already out there. Thank you so much again, Dan, for joining us. I love this conversation so much. It was it was a real honor to be asked. Thank you so much, everybody. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 42, discussing Excalibur 41, Reunion. It's an intriguing title. Are Excalibur and the X-Men finally going to be reunited? Maybe, sort of, not really. Uh, We will talk about it with a guest who's got lots of affection for some of those uncanny relationships. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for some of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and to more fun extras thank you andrew and matt for another poetic conversation thank you dan for being our legal counsel thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought forum music for our truly epic theme song play us out 